Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 50 of Unknown Orbits, City by Clifford D. Simak. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're talking about Clifford D. Simak's fix-up, City, which was a collection of a number of stories published in Astounding Magazine between 1944 and 1951. It's a future history. It's a very complex and interesting story. It starts out at a period in our future where the cities of the world are collapsing due to cheaply available atomic power and personal helicopters. So rather than flying cars, everybody has their own personal helicopter. That was something in the 40s to 50s, not just in science fiction, that someday we would all commute by helicopter. Right. I kind of envision them more like a gyrocopter. You, you know what a gyrocopter is? Oh, yes. Yeah. To me, that seems more practical than an actual helicopter. If you want to see a gyrocopter, they use one in When Worlds Collide. It's not a helicopter. It's a oh, gyrocopter. yeah, you're right. They do. So the cities are collapsing and people are, are moving out into the country because they can buy land cheap out in the country so they can live on a couple of acres and have a very nice, comfortable life. People that are remaining in the cities are people that have been pushed off of farms. There's a lot of farmers because there's like mass agriculture that's being done, replacing the family farm. So there's a combination of a handful of leftovers in the city and these displaced farmers and it's like every sixth or seventh house is occupied in the city this first chapter or story tells the story about how a character named webster is standing up to the sort of tyrannical remaining government of the city and he finds a descendant of one of the landowners in the city who comes back to visit the house where his father grew up. And this guy just happens to be a highly successful billionaire. So he winds up buying up all these abandoned properties and he seizes control of the city, takes control of the city away from the tyrannical government and basically turns the city into a park. The displaced farmers are able to, instead of doing the hydroponic farming that had replaced them on an industrial scale, they're doing like small boutique farms there in the city. And it's kind of a nice, happy ending. It's an interesting concept about how the cities collapse. And it really has very little to do with what happens in the rest of the book. This is the last reflexive fighting back of a city that's dying. And then the billionaire accelerates it into the final form that it was 
going to eventually become. Right. To just give a little more detail, the, the city leaders want to demolish and burn down all these empty houses. And that would involve evicting these dispossessed farmers who were squatters in some of these houses. So that's the conflict in the story. And the conflict is resolved by a, a God in the machine comes in, which is this billionaire who just buys up all these properties and says, okay, I'm now running the city. You know, without the billionaire, this is literally what's happening in Detroit. Yes and no. There's portions of Detroit that are actually being rebuilt. But yes, there's large sections of Detroit that are just going to turn into prairie land, basically. Yeah, they've been deconstructing. If there's a single person left on a block, they try to get them to move. Right, and they're just taking down block by block. So anyway, by itself, this would be a nice little story. It doesn't really tie in too much, except it introduces the first Webster character. And that's important because this is basically the story of the Webster family and all of their descendants over the centuries. A similar structure was used in The Bicentennial Man by Isaac Asimov, where you have a robot that stays with the same family and their descendants for 200 years. Which we have that in this there's a servant who, I believe he shows up in the second story. Jenkins? Jenkins. He's like a butler. He's literally a robot butler. He shows up in the second story, and he's almost immortal, so he's in this all the way to the end. So from there, you have, I think, the grandson of the original Webster is a surgeon, and he's developed a severe case of agoraphobia, and a very important Martian philosopher who's a friend of his calls over the inner space telephone and begs him to come and save him. He needs an operation, otherwise he's going to die. And he's almost completed his lifetime's work of a philosophical theory that he's developing. And because of the severe agoraphobia, the surgeon refuses to go to Mars and the guy dies. That's a really good story by itself, just stand alone, the structure of that and the way that it ends. I really like that a lot. And it's not just the surgeon with agoraphobia, it's the way humanity is going. Yeah, it's kind of implied that this is becoming a more common problem among humans at the time. I don't think Simak really ever does anything with that in the subsequent stories. And bear in mind, this is not a novel, this is a fix-up. Exactly. So these are just individual stories that were following a sort of a timeline. And then from there, it, it kind of gets into the main story of the book, which is this idea that one of the Webster's surgically and through training creates a race of intelligent dogs who can talk. And this race of intelligent dogs are initially sort of a pet project, no pun intended, of his, but they eventually breed and multiply and spread across the world. And eventually the dogs not only take control of the animal kingdom, but they teach the other animals how to talk too. And then as the dogs are taken over the animal kingdom, they jump to the planet Jupiter, where they're trying to explore the planet Jupiter on its surface. The humans are. The humans are. And they transform humans into Jovians, which are the resident creatures of that planet, so they can withstand the incredible gravity stresses of the surface of Jupiter. And one by one, they send transformed human beings out into the planet and they disappear and they don't come back. So one character, is you have a viewpoint character who that happens to him and he goes out with a dog 
So that's where the connection comes out. They transform a dog too. So he goes out into the Jupiter atmosphere and discovers that it's an unbelievable existence, that his consciousness is greatly enhanced and he's seeing things that no human's ever seen before and it's euphoric. Through his new body. Through his new body. It's a paradise. Right, right. So rather than this horrible, dangerous place, it's almost like a paradise. So he and the dog fight the urge to stay and he comes back and gets transformed back into a man and he has a difficult time trying to explain what he went through and it's this piece of philosophy that the martian was working on that winds up being a key to allow him to do that and this is a really complicated story so i'm kind of jumping around here but at one point there was some mutant humans living out in the wild on earth And one of the Websters finds this particular mutant human who's like super intelligent. He is able at a glance to figure out what's wrong with the philosophy, fixes it and completes the philosophy. Then they use that to figure out what's going on on Jupiter. It is eight or nine, depending on the edition, full stories with complicated plots and arcs. Yes. So each story is a standalone story. Each one is told from the perspective of one of the Websters, like the son, the grandson, the great-grandson, the great-great-grandson, so on and so forth. And throughout it all, Jenkins is there alongside them as a loyal robot servant. So long story short, I'm going to try to wrap this up a little bit. What happens is the majority of people on Earth leave Earth to go to Jupiter to become transformed into these Jovians and live this blissful life on Jupiter, and that depopulates the Earth of human beings. There's only a small handful left, and the dogs take over the planet. The mutants are there, but they kind of keep to themselves. And eventually, human beings die out on the planet, and they become transformed into mythic figures in dog culture, and the dogs take over the Earth. There's a thing at the end where a, a giant colony of super intelligent ants threaten to destroy the world, but the dogs figure out a way to stop that. And that's basically it. It's a very complex story. But Simak does such a good job of telling the stories, the individual nine stories, that you don't ever feel lost. You don't ever feel swamped. It's a really nice piece of future history. So I really liked it. It's very imaginative. It's different than almost anything I've read. I can't think of any other book I read that was similar in any way. Maybe you have some similar stories that you may have run across. I think maybe there's something with intelligent dogs. Yes. When you first suggested that we cover City, I immediately remembered a short story that I was convinced came from it, and it did not. It really fits well with it, though it's uh, much more of a downer ending. It's called Auto de Fe by Damon Knight. He gets a little philosophical. It's the far, far future Last man on earth is dying. He has companion dogs who are intelligent, speak, and it's not clear if they have hands or not. He has kept them from breeding, and he's nearing the end of his life. So the dogs want to have the antidote to the birth control that they have so that they can go on to create a civilization. And the human goes a little bit back and forth in the story. Thus the philosophy. Yeah. In the end, through his bitterness at this 
companion race of dogs superseding mankind and eventually forgetting him. He takes the antidote, which happens to be in container that is shaped kind of like a stick, and he throws it, and the dog's ancient instincts to catch the stick cause him to jump off of a balcony and fall to his death. And of course, that was the last male dog. Yeah, that is pretty much a downer ending, and I'm not a fan of people doing bad things to dogs. So I probably (laughs) would not have liked that story. I don't know if I've done full justice to this story. I would just say it's the sort of thing that you could read one or two of the chapters and hopefully would find them by themselves enjoyable. Yeah. That's really a sign of a good fix-up to me is that each one of those stories or chapters by themselves are standalone, enjoyable piece of work. And you can browse it and you, you you don't necessarily have to follow the overarching story. You like that in a fix-up. I do, because it's something between a novel and an anthology. Okay. One of the problems you have with a novel, and I'll give you an example. I just discontinued reading The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. And the reason I stopped reading it is I got like halfway through the book, and they were still telling the main character's backstory. And I got really frustrated with that. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not accepting the idea that a writer's going to spend hundreds of pages talking about a character's backstory. I'm like, okay, where is this story going? I have no idea where this story is going. You're not even giving me a hint where this story is going so that I hang in there with the story, with all this exposition. That's part of a problem you get with a novel. There's another one, The Wanderer, Fritz Leiber, which we may talk about in a future episode. That's the one where a wandering planet roams into the solar system. And the first half of it is great. It's exciting. It's like a disaster movie. It's like when worlds collide. Or the big eye. And then (laughs) it takes a hard left turn in the middle of the book. And I'm like, Nope, (laughs) I am not going with this hard left turn. Sorry. So that's the problem with a novel is you have to invest all of this time and energy into committing to read the whole damn thing. And how many times have we done that and we get to the ending or we get halfway through and we're like, you know, that pissed me off. I don't like that. And you've wasted all the time committing to try to read that whole thing. But with a fix-up... You can read halfway through and quit, and you've enjoyed, hopefully, several individually enjoyable little stories. But if you go all the way to the end, like I did with City, then you've got the additionally satisfying feeling of completing a a larger story. So it's the best of both worlds, I think. Okay, I'll go along with that. I had been thinking of a book like Canticle for Leibowitz. Which I reread and didn't care for. Oh, I had forgotten that you didn't like it, but it reads very much like a novel, even though it's a fix-up. Yeah, I would say it's much more of a novel than a fix-up. So that's the basics of City. Mr. Simak is a highly acclaimed, highly regarded master author. He is a three-time Hugo winner. He's a Science Fiction Writers of America Grand Master, born in Millville, Wisconsin. I looked it up, and I'm trying to remember. It was uh, 
Middle of nowhere, though. I've never heard of Millville, so I'm sure it's some wide spot in the road somewhere out west here. Wisconsin has a lot of middle of nowhere, to be fair. It's not Nebraska or Iowa, but it has its empty spaces. So I want to read a little quote from Clifford Simak describing how he views his writing. Reading this novel, I kind of agree. I think this does show what kind of a writer he really is. Overall... I have written in a quiet manner. There is little violence in my work. My focus has been on people, not on events. More often than not, I have struck a hopeful note. I have, on occasions, tried to speak out for decency and compassion, for understanding, not only in the human but in the cosmic sense. I have tried at times to place humans in perspective against the vastness of universal time and space. I have been concerned where we as a race may be going, and what may be our purpose in the universal scheme, if we have a purpose. In general, I believe we do, and perhaps an important one. So that's a very positive, people-oriented philosophy of writing, which puts him squarely in the, as you call it, the Silver Age of the 1950s, where science fiction shifted away from problem solving and super science to more people-oriented stories. And based on his popularity, it certainly struck a chord. My only remaining comments about the story, I only really have one, and that's that I hated the framing device. The robot? No, the dogs relating this as some sort of history. That tied it together, I thought. I didn't like it. It went on too long. It seems stilted. I didn't care for that. And I love the individual stories, but the framing device, I could have done without it. I don't think you really needed it because the end of the whole thing led you to understand that the dogs were progressing to become the dominant species on the planet. I suppose it could have been served just as well to have a half chapter of the dog saying, this collection of stories is our myths. Yes, that's all he needed to do, and that would have been enough. But it's a minor quibble. The stories themselves are fantastic. Any other thoughts on the city itself? I think we've covered it pretty well. Okay, so we're going to take a brief digression here, and we're going to talk about the company that first published City, and that company was called Gnome Press. Gnome Press was founded by two science fiction fans, David Kyle and Martin Greenberg, in 1948. Greenberg returned from service in World War II to find that his mother had thrown away his entire collection of science fiction magazines. Now, I don't know about you, I think you and I both have similar experiences in our life, where in my case, my mother threw away my collection of Mad Magazines from the 1960s, which today, if I still had those, God knows what they'd be worth. I had the first edition of Plop. I think I had that one too. And she gave away, while I was away in the service, she gave away my Hot Wheels. And I had like six of the original Hot Wheels, the very first Hot Wheels that ever came out. So we all had those experiences with our mother disposing of potentially important nerd stuff. This struck Greenberg into thinking, well, all of these wonderful stories by all these wonderful writers are perishable. And in order to do something about that, he decided to start collecting them in a more durable book form. And thus, he and his partner, Kyle, created Gnome Press. And by the way, Martin Greenberg went on to become 
a well-known anthologist and has, if I recall, some really good collections. Oh, yeah. I'm going to just read you a quote from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Gnome Press was important in the transitional period between genre science fiction as a magazine phenomenon and its arrival in mass marketing book publishing. And they're absolutely right. Gnome Press was not alone. There were other small press publishers, fan-based small press publishers. Arkham out of Wisconsin, founded by August Derleth, was certainly one. Not too much science fiction, but they republished Lovecraft. They republished... uh, It was originally created for reprinting Lovecraft and right. then went on to others. Right. Both Arkham and Gnome Press fulfilled the same function and the same place in history, which is they went back into Weird Tales and Astounding and some of these older magazines and revived all of these stories and anthologized them and brought them to a new generation of readers. And as we've talked in numerous episodes before, the, the 1950s was really the peak of the golden age of science fiction. You had more magazines. You had all of these presses coming up that were producing books, anthologies, novels, fix-ups. You had the beginnings of an academic press for science fiction. You had Day and his indexes, and you had Advent in Chicago. Yeah, so Gnome Press was an important component of all of that. As a matter of fact, in addition to printing Cymax City, they were the first ones to print Foundation by Asimov. Again, another fix-up. These were stories that were printed in Astounding, along with iRobot. So both Foundation and iRobot, which were fix-ups, very important works, were first published by Gnome Press in the early 1950s. But they also printed collections or novels from other important writers like Heinlein, Clark, Van Vogt, many others, many, many others. They literally had like the all-star lineup in terms of who they published at the time. But one of the things they're really famous for, and perhaps the most important thing that they did, is they republished all the original Robert E. Howard Conan stories. And that was hugely important in the history of fantasy, because unlike science fiction, Fantasy had a difficult time establishing itself as a discrete genre early on. We talked in a previous episode about Unknown Magazine. Oh, yeah. Edited by John W. Campbell in the 1940s, a very important and influential fantasy magazine. Many important authors wrote significant works of fantasy in that magazine. But that only lasted a few years. It was never a hugely successful publication. You had other magazines in the 1950s like Fantasy and Science Fiction, which obviously printed some fantasy, but it was Gnome Press reprinting the Conan books, and then a year or so later, Lord of the Rings being published in hardcover by Doubleday, I believe. That really launched the field of fantasy as its own genre. And then when the paperback revolution got to fantasy in the 1960s and early 70s, that really established it. But you never would have gotten those Lancer Conan paperbacks if Gnome Press had not kept the Conan stories alive in the 1950s in Gnome Press. So very, very important. In the establishment of fantasy as a genre, I could see one problem is that it's not as easy to define as science fiction. 
Yeah, it isn't. And there were some stories that could have been science fiction, could have been fantasy. So that kind of blurred the lines too. A lot of magazines published both in the 1950s. So you read the Conan stories. It's clear there's no question that is not remotely considered science fiction. And there's other examples you could point to, too, that are clearly fantasy. So Gnome Press was very important. I can't stress that enough. Eventually, Greenberg's partner left, went on to other things. He had financial struggles. According to many of the authors that he published, they never received the residuals that they were due Some of them wound up leaving. He lost Asimov eventually because he was not paying the residuals that were due to him. That's really a sign of a sinking ship. There's no coming back. Right. So it's very typical. And there was that period in the late 1950s, early 1960s, where there was some upheaval in the field. And then you also had competition coming in from the big publishing houses. They began buying and publishing science fiction too. That's what happened with Asimov. One of the major publishing companies poached Asimov away, and I think Asimov had to actually sue Greenberg to get control of Foundation and iRobot back so it could be republished. So that's what happened to Gnome Press, is they just, one by one, they lost their authors, and many of those works that they published went on to greener pastures in the 1960s in paperback form. So that's all I've got on Gnome Press. I don't have any further thoughts on City. Do you have any further thoughts? I don't have any further comments on City, but I do have a pet peeve that happened to come up in the course of this episode, and I might as well say it now. Get it off your chest. Absolutely. Isaac Asimov is famous for the collection iRobot. He had no stories called iRobot. And of course, this is a reference to I, Claudius. So it's not an unusual title for someone to come up with. Right. However, there is a story called I, Robot written in the first series of robot stories featuring a robot called Adam Link. And this was written by Eando Binder, which was another writing team, by the way. They were brothers. I don't remember their first names other than the initials because they were E and O binder. Ah. Now, the only place you might have come across Adam Link is an episode of The Outer Limits where a professor gets killed by his robot and the robot goes on trial and the reporter is Leonard Nimoy. I remember that. And he saves a little girl at the end and proves that he's a decent creature after all. Yes. See, for years, I thought that was based on an Asimov story. I'm not surprised. He made out like he invented the robot story. Well, as we've talked about previously, there's some question about how much of the laws of robotics, the famous laws of robotics, like one of the first things that's mentioned in his obituary is he invented the laws of robotics. Well, maybe he co-invented them with John W. Campbell. Now, John W. Campbell basically denied it, but he would say anything if it was good for the magazine. Right. And again, I hate to keep making the same point, but we've talked about this in a previous episode where early in his career for Asimov, Campbell would feed him an idea. He would say, hey, I got this idea. Why don't you see if you can take it and run with it? Like Nightfall, his famous story, Nightfall, that we did in a previous episode, was one of those situations where Campbell said, what if a world where they'd never seen the night, 
suddenly had an eclipse and they saw stars for the first time, what would happen? And that's the idea he gave to Asimov, and Asimov went out and wrote the story. But, you know, it's part of our ongoing campaign against Isaac Asimov on this podcast. I would like to do an episode on editorial tricks. I have a collection of them. Maybe we could do the whole episode on one where it involves Isaac Asimov as well. Well, of course. That's right in our wheelhouse. All right, that's it for episode 50. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.